Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Poetry. I'm your host, Jen Fitzgerald. Today, we are going to speak with an author whose work I have admired for quite some time. Dorothea Lasky was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. She earned a BA at Washington University, an MFA at UMass Amherst, and a doctorate in creativity and education from the University of Pennsylvania. She is the author of three full-length collections of poetry, Thunderbird, Wave Books 2012, Black Life, Wave Books 2010, and Awe, Wave Books 2007. She is also the author of six chapbooks. Her poems have appeared in such journals as American Poetry Review, Boston Review, The New Yorker, Tin House, The Paris Review, among others. She is currently an assistant professor of poetry at Columbia University School of the Arts and lives in New York City. Her newest collection, Rome, will be out in September of this year with W.W. W. Norton's Liverite imprint. Welcome, Dottie. Hello! <laughs> Before we start talking about the new collection, uh, we'd like to get to know a little bit more about you, if that's okay. Sure. Um, so what is a St. Louis childhood like? Um, well, uh, I guess in retrospect, it was probably a quiet childhood, although I didn't um, look at it that way, because I, I definitely have always seen St. Louis as a, you know, great urban hub. And, um, and especially because TWA had their headquarters there for most of my childhood, I really um, felt like I was growing up in a great metropolis. Mm-hmm. But, but living in New York and you know, knowing more people um, that are from New York, I, I see how quiet it, it was. And definitely going back there, I'm struck how much it, it feels um, it feels a little bit uh, smaller than other places I've lived. Mm-hmm. But, it, um, yeah, it was, it was uh, oh, I don't want to say nice. <laughs> I mean, it had its, its bad things, too. I also, I went to college there, too, which kind of skews my memories a little bit, because it's not like the kind of thing that ends at 18. It, it sort of is a weird memory that extends into that also. And I think I, I started to get to know St. Louis in a different way going to um washu and so uh, so i i feel like i have different facets of understanding of it yeah but, do your folks still live there well my dad passed away um four years ago I'm but so my sorry. oh thank you. yeah and but my mom does still live there and my dad was actually um born there and um his parents met at the 1904 world's fair uh, on the carousel the giant carousel i think it was called the colossus um so he was very much a st louis and and um my mom was kind of a transplant there but she's been there um you know over 35 years so now she's pretty much a st louis yes so do you have any siblings no, I don't have any siblings. I'm only child. <laughs> I know. That might explain something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so growing up there, um, when did you first realize that you wanted to be a writer? Well, when I was um, when I was little, uh, like, you know, I, I, I always liked to talk. <laughs> and I especially um, like to talk to adults. I like to talk to my um, parents and I like to communicate and I really like to read. Um, But around age seven, um, for some reason, my parents would put me to bed a lot earlier than I wanted to. I always wanted to stay up really late. And I think I used to have to go to bed at like 10 p.m., which seemed really early because, um, you know, my mom would be staying up later. And so I um just in my room it was really hard to read because it was so dark. So I I for some reason turned to writing and I'm not really sure what occurred to me to do so the first time. But once I started writing in the dark I started writing 
poems um, because they just, uh, I, I'm, you know, I think that they were things that I didn't have to worry about sentence structure or like a narrative or I felt like I could talk directly to someone and it, it was, you know, much like that kind of, you know, direct relationship to keep my interest. And so I started writing poems then and, and, um, but it was a really long time before I decided that I really was going to be a poet. I don't know if I've totally even decided that now. <laughs> Did you save any of those poems from back then? Uh, you know, I I know um, I I know one by heart, but I'm I have having some trouble because I've been looking for them, and I have like an old diary, but I don't have some of you know. The, the original words. <laughs> I know they're somewhere. Um, I just wish I knew exactly where. I'm. My parents moved like in my mid twenties, and I I think they. I don't want to think they got lost in that. But if they are not lost, they're kind of maybe <laughs> not mm -hmm. an easy place to find. <laughs> well, if at if at any point during the interview the feeling comes upon you to recite <laughs> the one that you have memorized, I will not stop you. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so, uh, who was the first writer whose work you connected to? Well, you know, the first book that I remember, like really reading and feeling connected to. Um, was like, I think I was around nine or 10 and my parents got me, you know, books to read and stuff. But I remember that they had gotten me The Old Man in the Sea um, by Hemingway. And I, I stayed up, you know, it was like, I guess it was light by the time I started it. And I, I read that like in one sitting mm -hmm. and I felt very connected to that. And I've, I don't, I haven't had like an adult, like really deep relationship to, Hemingway but um but I think that was kind of a a weird spark because that you know book is so lonely and um I felt lonely also so in the um in the margins or actually on the on the front page of your book that I had been reading um I wrote in very large letters the Hemingway of poetry I was reading this. Really? Yes. <laughs> and I was going to talk a little bit about that later, about your economy of language. Um, yeah, I totally think you're the Hemingway of poetry. <laughs> That's so sweet. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny because I, uh, when when posed that question on a daily basis, I've been, when I've thought about that question before, I, I usually do say Sylvia Plath because um, she, when I was in high school, I had... Um, kind of this profound sort of poetic experience with her but for some reason I just remembered Hemingway so mm. and that reading that book so I think awesome. that, yeah yeah awesome. it was like the first it was the first book that I remember having mm. that relationship to so um, I was hoping that maybe you could read a poem now um, I, I picked an interesting one to uh, start off <laughs> I'm reading with. If you could read I Am Eddie Murphy on page 12. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, okay. Uh, all right. Let me just. Okay, here we go. Okay. I Am Eddie Murphy. Girl, I heard that you got a place where you tell jokes a la Eddie Murphy 1985. But how do you do that? I Am Eddie Murphy. I heard that you do wine tastings with Eddie Murphy in the vineyards of Italia, and I am confused. I am not there. I am Eddie Murphy. I am snorting cocaine off of tanned Italian backsides while ten young men suck my gigantic dick for 200 hours. Do you eat a fine steak dinner with Eddie Murphy? But I am still hungry, and it is 4 a.m. on the west side. I am going home to my majestic marble linoleum. I tell the jokes here, and if you want to come into my house, introduce yourself first. Don't just go walking in and telling the people you know them, or you are the one they have been waiting for. They aren't waiting for anything. I make royalties on my sort of thing. I give them what they need. We are brethren. We are together. This is not about you. You write a punchline. Go up in front of the crowd. Say, I am the thing that makes you turn. 
But honey, it is a lie when you do it. You are the person outside the house. I am the one gracious enough to let you in. Thank you. Sure. Um, I thought this piece would be a great jumping off point to discuss where your poems come from. Yeah. So I don't know if it's... <laughs> <Yeah>. a- <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know if the, because a lot of your poems, even though the language, um, you know, tends to skew more simplistic, the, the, you know, the thought behind them and how cerebral they are is, is astonishing. So I, I, I'd love to, to kind of get in your head a little and see where these come from. Sure. If you can handle what you like. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. We might have to edit the crap out of this interview. Okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, um, so (laughs) what's the question? (laughs) Um, if you could just, um, let the reader into your process a little. Yeah. Well, um, okay. Do you mean, well, should I think about it in terms of like this, like the influences of this poem or, um, or just like, like the just writing process in general or yeah Yeah. i I think that where the first spark of a poem comes from and then how it is seen to the end yeah um well i think that um i i feel that i very much like draw from two two things when writing a poem and um the first, I mean, they're, they are really simple, but the first thing is the, you know, visual world and, um, and kind of having an everyday experience with certain, um, certain visual objects and having a relationship to objects and thinking about, you know, language that is not just like describing it, but thinking about the essence of those objects and experiences. And that sounds really vague, but um, I feel you know, like one of the, I feel like there, there's a great myth of writer's block because I feel that, um, when you're feeling like you can't write something, like the easiest thing to do is just to like go out in the world and just look at stuff and just describe it and not feel necessarily pressure that you have to create this, you know, masterpiece from what you're describing, but just to have a relationship to like, you know, essentially to what's around you, um, can just produce a lot of, you know, poetic language. So I think that's a big source of inspiration. And the other thing is just, um, just listening to the kind of things that people say, um, and not always listening to it in terms of, um, in terms of meaning, because, um, I feel that, you know, so much of what people say has to do with just power relationships or, um, establishing, you know, uh, what you know establishing relationships and making sure that they don't become fractured and it's not very much about content it's kind of just this emotional back and forth Mm -hmm. and for a while I was like I I studied autistic kids and um, I've always found autism really fascinating but there's that idea that you know may or may not be true true but that researchers um, feel that when you have autism you don't necessarily think of language in the same way you don't have this reason to repeat things or to set up power dynamics and there's like this famous story of this um little boy whose mother says like why don't you say I love you and um the little boy says like I did say I love you on September 17th like 1983 (laughs) that's been established like now we can move on but but as humans we're always um you know we're always saying uh, things that don't have anything to do with the content. There's no, there's no need for us to say "I love you" like a million times a day, except that we're we're just we keep establishing power and emotional relationships because that's like they're always at this danger of being shifted or fractured, and we always want to keep those bonds. So I think I just try to listen for that language a lot because it's really potent, and it doesn't always have to do with the you know, shell of language around it. It's always about the emotional content behind it. 
And I feel that a lot in your work. And I love when, when I, um, I feel as though I'm being taken to a place or a time or a landscape. And then the speaker starts to come into it a little and assert, you know, him or herself. Um, and then relate the speaker to the landscape. That's one of the, one of my favorite things about your poems. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> I've always felt that um, it's kind of this horrible um, burden, which of course we learn in school. The speaker of the poem is not the poet, but we still always um, for, forget that, especially when we're reading female poets, I feel like. So um, I think it's important to always try to, you know, keep reminding the reader this is not this, the views do not represent the management. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what you know like things like just have writing an eye poem and the eye can be anything is always like a freeing thing to remind the reader that obviously this you know that that speaker is not actually eddie murphy so <laughs> what do you, you know <laughs> what are you gonna do with that <laughs> um so rome is is a long collection um for how long were you working on it um <laughs> my entire life no. <laughs> um no i was working on it for um you know maybe about a year um i think that like uh all the all the collections since i started being lucky enough to like have places to publish them they they kind of have all been they all take like about nine months to a year and then um, and then it like takes that long to like go through the publication process or something. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's so I, I think, yeah, I think that's about how long this one maybe is a little bit, um, like a little faster, maybe like eight or nine months, but okay. yeah. Um, yeah. Would you read I Feel Pity on page 78? Sure. I Feel Pity. I feel pity for my sister who is dying somewhere in a lonely house. I feel pity for my dog who had to die without me on a table after months of pain. I feel pity for the stranger in the hospital bed who is never touched but sleeps there nonetheless. What love for me, what love for them I feel. Absolute pity, tenderness. I feel pity and sadness for the children in the schools who are not given a fair shot. I feel pity for the books that are published and then burned, with bodies that fell a thousand trees. I feel pity for the trees left outside in the cold and wind to fend for themselves with roots so thick and no one sees. I feel pity for the sky with blue vapors. It hugs the clouds and the clouds don't care. I feel pity for my legs, this desk. I feel pity for this desk, its wooden face. Won't I just throw it away when I am done with it? I feel pity for the moon raging against the day and what for its crazy face. All ghostly, that is what they really say about it. I feel pity for the stars, the blue stars and the red stars and the green stars. I feel pity for the stars that shoot sparks and the green gray. I feel pity for the colors. I feel pity for this room where I will go and bring a life in. I feel pity for that life and more. I feel pity for all of the lives that go on and no one even stops to notice. I feel pity for the flowers, the birds, all of them, and even pity for the birds. But I don't feel pity for you. I don't pity you, you big hot thing. I don't feel pity for your arms, which could hold me for a thousand hours, and I want them to. I don't feel pity for you. Among all these things, I love you more, more and most of all, and you are careless and ceaseless, like you always are to everyone. I don't feel pity. You have this poem, this book. I don't feel pity. They will talk of you for a thousand years. You gorgeous spirit, you, you crazy nothing, blonde hair and sublime torso, smile more than a million men, a truly million dollar man in greenish suit, wild spirit, you, I love you, I love you when you're rocking, I love you when you're rocking, always for me, but never for me, always, always in the wind. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Um, it was after this poem where I had wanted to talk about how I thought of you as the Hemingway of poetry and that you found a way to express poetic thought using the least amount of language, um, the economy of language. So I guess I'd like to know a little bit about the, the revision process. Yeah, thank you so much um, for saying that. Um, yeah, um, I guess that my revision process uh, has a lot to do with sound. And um, I, I think, you know, writing the poem a lot of times has to do with sound. And I make lots of um, um, choices based on based on sound versus like, oh, you know, should that person wear a hat or you know, <laughs> <laughs> like any of those questions? I very rarely, they, all, they always seem very foreign to me when, when I think about them, but. But and then, yeah, just revising poems is, is just very much like getting the sound of poems right. And um, if I, I have uh, lots of poems that just die because I, if I can't get the sound right, then, um, then there's no point to me in trying to keep it. Mm-hmm. And if I can't figure it out. And a lot of times um, when I'm writing a poem, like if I write it and I feel like it might not be dead then I do kind of get into this space like um I re- I I recently met Chris Krause in person um and I spent time with her this summer I like I'm really like in love with her I love her mm-hmm. and she um she said that like when she writes she gets into this um bubble where she kind of is just obsessed with this you know, whatever she's working on. And then that, like, then it just ends and, you know, you're just in the bubble or you're not. Mm-hmm. And I think with a poem, I, I get into the, you know, bubble of its music and try to fix it. And it, it does have this like kind of time where I'm kind of obsessively working on the sound and then it either, you know, is okay or not. And very, sometimes if I like feel like I can't fix it or enter into an obsessive, um, bubble then I just like wait and sometimes I will go back but there's so many poems that just they just kind of die because for whatever reason I never you know go back to them and try to fix them but yeah that sounds like a really effective process because if you can't become enamored with the piece then how could the reader right yeah yeah and yeah. even though um yeah we t- with obsession can have negative connotations i think it's very important when you're making something to be obsessed with it mm-hmm. totally yeah um would you read lilac field on page 51 sure here we go all right lilac field To perform death is something only humans would do. No animal would sit there with a blank look on its face just because the camera is there. No, no, an animal would look directly in it or cover its face like the overweight woman in the picture in the magazine by the room where I keep my bed. What people don't understand about beauty is that after all, it is not fleeting. After all, it is so gross to be that way that someone sees among you. After all, to call into question, I painted my lips, my eyes. Only our scholars know that to perform is to be malleable. To perform in language, or was it, the large purple insect I let in the room Or was it the furred face, the hippo or the gorge? That I was the devil in the wood, in my own bones that I knew the face, that I took that face. Was it midnight blue sky? No, were my wings iridescent? Even in these lines, the voice moves you. What sense of exquisite cause? Thought moves you past these lines into conversation with the undead. I don't know. That is something you will have to answer for yourself. I came back to this place to help you. And that I did. Shoot sparks of green and gray through time. What skin sack I put myself in? I mean, for what, why, or who did I manage to do this for, if not you? Lilac thing, the soft rustle of beetle wings, an air that is warm and gray and is not strong, but there is there to carry us past it. Well, this is a poem that I really almost let die because I really didn't, 
I really wasn't obsessed with it in any way. And, and all, a lot of the sounds were off. And I still feel like it's not perfect, but it had some kind of really wonky sounds in there that I tried to get out. <laughs> um, I, I actually really like this poem. And um, it really wasn't until I had gotten halfway through the book that it became um, really apparent to me that there was no punctuation. Um, and of course, you don't you don't use punctuation. And um, when W.S. Merwin stopped using punctuation, he said it was to unstaple the words from the page. Um, can you speak a little bit about why you do not employ it? It's interesting that you mention uh, Merwin because it is um, because of I don't want to say totally because of Merwin, but a really really big um, important reason I don't use punctuation has to do with him um, because. Uh, when I was had had just graduated from MFA school, I taught in this elementary school, and I did like a writers in the schools, you know, program. Mm-hmm. And I was um, teaching uh, uh, third graders, I believe, his poem "Vixen," and I've always really loved that poem. Um, and uh, the one of the students said, "Oh, you know." he's you know that he doesn't use any punctuation here and um it kind of you know made me realize of course to somebody who is just learning to use punctuation and how important it is to like have a comma and um and you know what the rules are that that would seem so insane (laughs) and like just like unbelievable and of course it seems like unbelievable to us but you know just like so crazy and um so I, I kind of I didn't make that decision totally in that moment, but I think that that moment kind of carried me into doing it more and more until I, you know, try to use as little as possible. And um, I think some of that too has to do with my love of uh, Latin poetry and just thinking about the ways in which, you know, Romans didn't use punctuation and, and um, in their language. And also just, um, that idea of I love deadpan or things that are flat mm-hmm. that you have to kind of you know put your own your own emotions into it. It's like this is the the thing, and you have to kind of deal with it and put your own whatever into it. And so I feel that lack of punctuation can do that because you have to worry about the way rhythm is on your own without you know having the crutch of a comma or something like that. Yeah, I, I find that your poems um, come alive in an entirely new dimension when I read them aloud to myself in my own cadence and in my own voice. It's, it's almost like I'm putting my imprint on them or like imposing my will over them in some way. Um, yeah. yeah <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, um, I, I feel like it's cool to let people stress different words in a way. I mean, that that is like creating new you know, meaning where you're not totally in control of what what word they might focus on mm. and what, yeah. So the next poem that I was hoping you would read for us was um, Relative Certainty on page 92. And this is the one where I think that um, your voice is clear and that the reader maybe cannot impose their will so much on this poem. Okay, okay yeah. Um, Sure, yeah, relative certainty. I am relatively certain that I was an animal in a past life. Why do I know? Because of my snout, because of the fur that surrounds me, because of my love, my she-wolf, my she-wolf, I love you. All of my hormones, the naked body, and then the dead one, the days sweet and long, and then no dates at all, utter space to make a deal with. I am relatively certain it was the fur that was important before I was trapped in this body. I know before the planets engulfed me, I looked at people and tried to talk, and it was my vocabulary, my tone, that did me in. Thank you. Um, I think this is, besides the title poem, one of my favorite pieces in the book, and it's because of the turn that it makes, how it goes from this very singular experience, and then it's like, before the planets engulfed me. Can you talk a little bit about this poem? 
Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it, it did uh, start out as a love poem. And um, it is a love. A lot of the poems in here are love poems to um, a particular animal. Um, but uh, of course, like thinking of Rome and, and the she wolf and that like kind of great animal mother, um, that that is kind of where the love poem starts. Um, but of course, uh, I feel like when you love something, you are very aware that it's going to die. Mm-hmm. And then you're very aware that you're going to die, too. <laughs> That's why loving anything is the worst thing you can possibly do. Agreed. <laughs> because, uh, you know, then you're really trapped in an awful cycle. <laughs> but, yeah, so um, so I think that's the kind of point that it, you, like, when you love something, you realize you're totally capable of... Um, you know, like in that in Space Odyssey two thousand one, where the after or there's all kinds of great space movies. Of course, that's the one that we think of a lot. Is like where the astronauts just like, oh shit, you know, I'm the body's just in space, and it has to deal with that kind of you know sublime, engulfing sort of feeling of really not being meaningful at all. And that's I feel like that's the alienation you feel when you love anything. Yeah. <laughs> Because you realize there's no, um, it, you just wonder what the point of it, what the point of it is. So um, you, and, you do, you do wonder, and I still wonder. Um, I, you know, I also suffered a loss of an animal that was like the most important thing in my life before my child, and and when he died, um, I, I grieved so intensely that I questioned the reason to love anything in the first place. Um, you know, especially once you have that trauma of grief, any love that you enter into is just going to, you're just going to carry that with you. Like, oh, well, this is going to really suck when it ends. So why am I even bothering? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And definitely that's how I've governed all my friendships and relationships. (laughs) Yeah. And so you do kind of, um, yeah, I think, and I think that's true in a poem too. It's like, um, there's there's different safe distances to have in terms of being vulnerable um, before. I mean, I think that's something that happens, especially in discussions of contemporary poetry. We we like don't you know we want our, an eye to be vulnerable, but we don't want it to be totally you know we don't want it to be a diary entry or whatever. We don't want to like actually. Um, see anything totally real we want this like safe tension so there is that kind of weird alienation that you have with a reader also when you're a poet that you know you can't you have this really intimate relationship with them but you can't totally um, give yourself over because you're completely distant forever Mm -hmm. uh, due to time or space or whatever but um, but uh, and the end of the poem's a little bit indebted to Jack Spicer um, and his idea. My vocabulary did this to me, like so. It's a little bit of a thing to it, like just that idea that that you know what your language, um, how your language like imprints on you and kind of changes you and changes. Um, the world and it kind of like we start off totally not that we are totally innocent but mm-hmm. we start off like anything could happen and it is like language that constantly you know dirties us or sullies that possibility hmm. I had never thought of it that way I had always thought of language as as an elevator um, you know not the kind that you push buttons of course but just something that like that that can lift you and and rise you above your station and and give you access to to the world to communicating with the world yeah Mm. i agree with that also (laughs) (laughs) i'm not sure the speaker of this poem agrees no the speaker of this poem no (laughs) definitely not I'm not 100% sure that I would like to meet the speaker of this poem at night in an unpopulated area. Yeah, yeah because, yeah, this speaker feels like you can't really say it. Nothing you can say is ever going to bring, you know, uh, closeness that that might want want to be there. Yeah, um, I guess just, that, you know, we, we could talk about this forever, but um, something that I really found solace in after the loss of 
of my uh, my dog. Um, I, I was speaking to the, a really smart poet friend of mine, and um, I was like, you know, what is the fucking point? And she said, the point of life is to love, and that's it. And it was it was as simple as that. It's like we're here to love because that is the connecting and unifying force. And the more time we spend in it, the better off we are. I, I mean, I, I didn't buy it at the time, but with with a couple of years distance, it makes a lot of sense. It's like, w- would I have given up that love just because of that grief? I don't know. Oh, no, I definitely would never um, give up the possibility just because I know it's going to and I think but um but I think it's just hard to enter into anything that you know in it and you're going to feel deeply because of that and there's yeah because there are so many different kinds levels of love I feel like um right absolutely yeah absolutely yeah yeah not just like the differences of you know animal or romantic or whatever but just levels of um I guess of obsession mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, being totally consumed <laughs> all right so um for the final poem I was hoping that you could read the title piece now this is a very long piece it's a poem in 10 parts um but besides uh, relative certainty it is my absolute favorite in the collection so would you read Rome on page 113 sure thank you so much of course Hey, here we go. <laughs> Everyone's <laughs> sit down, kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One, one. Hope you're not listening to this on a roller coaster because <laughs> it might not be long enough. Okay, okay. Um, Rome. One. I always loved you, and I didn't love him, and I used you as a counterpoint to what I didn't like. But you weren't you that I loved you and didn't love him was some sort of thing that wasn't true. Two, in time spent with you, I always laughed a million hours of moods and emotions or that I perceived it so. But really that young guy who cared about emotions is dead. And in his place, a bitter man growing fat and embittered and more or less that potential over and over again, your calcified heart that I said I'd put up with if only I could talk to your calcified cop, but really it was your dead heart that would have done us in. Three, Rome is about the Colosseum, said the cashier in the local market where I went with my mother in the town I grew up in. No longer a young man, but tunneling towards a ferocity not anyone could have predicted. When my soft smile smiled at those who only looked at me, but now I look at the cashier straight in the eye. As he said in Rome, it was all about governments ruled by cardinals. But instead of clergymen, I thought of red birds my father and I used to stare at through the window of our yellow house so many years ago. Four. I guess I had to go to the woods. It was part of this pilgrimage to get rejected so vehemently over and over again until some said it was the rejection I was after. No, it wasn't. I wanted the intensity that you sometimes promise. You made the illusionary moon in the doorway. You wanted me to stare at the ceiling. How else to? I believed it was that young heart that I fell in love with, not the bitter one. And as we grow older, my love, you know it just gets older and older, and mine just gets younger, wilder, my heart more an animal. You know, my love, you are already dead, and you were when I met you at the Guggenheim, and later when you squealed at the fast cab. Even though I should have been turned off, maybe it was your weakness that made me think you weren't already dead, but you are. You died that first year in the cold. Just like the people told me, so boring to think of, not Art Deco, not the West, but as boring to talk about as the Weather Channel, as boring to hear about as the men discussing golf. Five. In Baltimore, the towns are so close to the capital that when I went there with my friends to see poets like the hot Adam Robinson, I felt like, oh, this is Rome. 
Like when I hid in the midst of it, I said I could stare at the ceiling in the dark in my warm bed. But a person can make a beautiful bed and murder you in it. And that's what you did. And not fuck me in it. I want to be clear about this bodily rejection, that you rejected my body so strongly that my poems about corpses will always be about you. You told me I was safe, and then you murdered women everywhere, the ones you don't care about, still the sister, and I want you, the truth of it, me wanting you, in dead linens, maybe to swaddle you, and that is what we do with a lover. And no, you're not that, that you made sure, maybe to hold my eye to yours, so you can really see what you have given up, so you can truly see what you have given up. When at 60 it might hit you, what you have given up, when your sentimental heart might let its hair down and see the sun for the first time. Six. I remember the irony you said that it was this person, this person in the poem that first attracted me to you, that this eye is what might connect me to you. It turned me on, you, you silly little girl. We are in the dirty, dirty forum, and I have my sword, and you are so shored up. Are you even defenseless? No, you have your back to me, rushing off to your home, and I am turning and turning for the crowd, have my dead tigers twisting for me, playing dead, my metal dress, perverse obsessions, and it is only now that I realize I am bleeding, now no air, now dead, and that it was your careful strike that made it so. Seven. Just a few days ago, I cried in a purple frock, ready to meet my friend at the French restaurant. So tired, I cried, not to my friend, but to myself in the mirror. And I said, get it together, Dottie. And then later, a week later, Adam said, the night cools. Then he said, grow up. Now I cry against glass that only shows myself and say I will kill you, a sexless tiger. I will say, what is your life? If not, no one wants you, only to track blood across cold snow. So I said, no, I will kill the next competitor. No, I said, I will hold my hand out again when I meet him in the Coliseum ground. Eight. We both know that the moon isn't you or the hymn isn't you. We both know you aren't you. You know you aren't you. You are a patrician in a nice house going home to your family house. We both know you will never be banned from the city to the countryside. We both know you are another rich bourgeoisie boy with little talent who will do something simple. We both know that you are a simple guy who saw the savagery of my body and pushed it away like an old serving maid, disposable, forgetting even though you shouldn't have what I could do to you. Even you forgot this, that this sort of thing was possible and that you should be careful. You weren't careful because part of you believed every lie I told you because most of you is dead and the parts that aren't will soon be. Nine. Sometimes I forget I am dead already. Love, I am dead now, said my friend. Sometimes I forget the emptiness of the arena, that this page is what I carve into, and that everyone has gone home to their families, and that I feast on air, my own dead desire, that always wins as it loses. Augustus and Livy, and the battle of Zama, and the battle of Elysia, the curved blade, the coin with my face on it, the man you were in 50 BC who picked up the coin with my face on it, who put it in your pocket to give to a sweetheart. Until moments later, another part of me came rushing up and killed you. Just because you dared get in here, in empty places, my empty heart, where only a dumb coward would wander in on the way to the marketplace. 10. Under the arena, they keep the animals ready to be killed, but don't get excited. These animals aren't you. Red tiger, black lion, white macaque, blue macaw with blue eyes, the fortune of admiration. Don't get too excited. 
You aren't an animal, but a man who killed me. Now I am in a dirty arena with no other human. The sun has snow on it. They bring up cats, bears, a rodent, and I kill them all. Even the two-headed beast with the snake for tail and fanned crown is dead. It's easy to kill. They bring up my own dead body, propped over with dead desire, and I kill it. They bring up my daughter, her wolf eyes, a sign of recognition, and with my hand on her neck, I say goodbye. Never bringing you up, you already went home five years ago and sleep so quietly and soundly with your family and frankincense and your Christianity and Christmases and bursting silver buckles. This isn't about you. This was and has always been about the real, bloody and awful, twisting and twisting. Love is a strange dance I do with myself, but I won't give it up. Renting a car 2,000 years later to go driving the dark streets full of ghosts. Classic nitrogen and the dogs in the distance. One of those ghosts I know, lover, will be you. And when I find that ghost, only you know, only we know what we will do with it. Wow. Thank you. I, I'm sorry that I said arena in a straight... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Can we go back and say woo? <laughs> it's funny how words come out in strange accents. It's like arena. <laughs> I mean, mispronounced everywhere. Uh, well, I, I think it was perfect. <laughs> um, so this poem knocked me over when I first Thank read you. it. Um, The progression is seamless, but it functions like a wave entering and retreating and again, or even like a rambling house. If you ever have seen that layout where you enter a home and you can just continue to walk through the rooms and it's all part of the same house, but each room is this entire entity in and of itself. I, I love this. I think this is the best poem you ever wrote. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I, I wanted to have a title poem. <laughs> so here we are. <laughs> and I, I want to. I feel like thank you so much because I feel um yeah I feel like series poems. That's that's my um favorite thing about them is that you you know like you have the ability just to write ten poems and be like I guess you're gonna read one, <laughs> one poem. I'd really like to write a book length poem. I don't know if I could do it, but um but maybe it would be like a long series, right? I guess that's one way to think of book-length poems. Oh, definitely. Yeah, no, you you are really good at that. Um, I, I don't know of many other poems that you've written that have this um, length and depth. Um, am I misremembering, or is this one of the longest that you've written? Yes. No, I am... Um... You know, I I have um, a, a long poem. I have a couple long poems in my first book that aren't this long, but um, I definitely was thinking about those poems. Um, and that, like, there was one point when I was in school when um, I was like working in this writing group called Redheads and Goatees, and <laughs> there was one other. Uh, um, there was a, a redhead um, named Rita Rich, and she said, you know. You should try to write, you, you write all these direct address poems, you should try to write a poem that just feels very different. And I wrote a series poem, and then I wrote another one, and it was, like, really um, freeing. And I, when I was writing this poem, I tried to think about what she had said, you know, and what I did with those. Um, but, they're, yeah, they're not as long. Yeah. Now, this, yeah. I, I can see um, the freeing part of it, but it is still a very controlled environment. And um, the way that you end the poems, um, like there's one, let me see, that I just... Almost every single section of this ends with, like, the slam dunk, as I like to call it, where, like, that last line or last image, like, when your sentimental heart might let its hair down and see the sun for the first time. Like, that. that's a punch. Yeah. I love it. And then each you know, one of these sections does that. It's like these little mini punches, and then you get to the end, and it's like knockout. Thank you. Thank you so much. It is, yeah. it is supposed to be a constant decimation of, of the, you know. 
Yeah, I, I mean, and I, um, I think that's what I love. Catullus is one of my favorite quotes, and I love how he's just like, um, you know, he can just hit you, and then when you're down, he just kicks you, <laughs> <laughs> and then he kind of spits in your face, and then he like just like walks away and whistles. And so I, I always like want to do that. Yeah, yeah. but <laughs> sometimes it's scary to do that because it's so mean. But. <laughs> well, it's it's what I look for in a poet personally. So, <laughs> so Dottie, who are you reading now? Who am I reading? Um, just the the air and the trees. <laughs> yeah, no, I you know I. I feel, I don't know why I feel guilty about this. I shouldn't, but I have just, I keep reading Anne Sexton. I really love her a lot. And for a while, I, um, like, uh, you know, I don't know why, like some sort of solidarity of my love to Sylvia Plath. I kind of like was like, oh, Anne Sexton, as if you can, you know, have to pick a side. It's so yeah. Um, kind of misogynistic that <laughs> we think that it's like you can have one female poet. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, so I ha- I have been reading her a lot and um just reading Wallace Stevens and um and uh yeah like I I kind of I I really love um Kate Durbin's new book um yeah and I so I, I think she's like really awesome. I don't know if you've ever seen the stuff she does on online like she does all kinds of performative um you know projects where she does costuming and stuff and i think she i think she's really great definitely look her up yeah yeah so uh, what would you do if you couldn't write poetry oh so (laughs) well (laughs) it's funny because i really um i really didn't want to be a poet for like a long time because i just thought it was you you weren't really helping people and I thought it was really selfish so I would um I definitely would I I still would love to do this but I think I would want to work in like education policy and um and or be a psychologist wow you'd be good at both of those for sure thank you so much <laughs> <laughs> yeah, eagerly I take that <laughs> Uh, well you know we've taken quite a bit of your time today um and i want to thank you so much it was a real pleasure thank you thank you you for having me on your show of course um so rome will be on the shelves in september i encourage everybody to get their copy as soon as humanly possible um this is jen fitzgerald for new books and poetry reminding everyone to support all the arts but especially poetry 